Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction, and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. I sincerely appreciate each one of you. This show has becoming more successful each week, reaching a larger audience each week, and it is because of our listeners. You make our show. When you leave comments and reviews, it is sincerely appreciated. And the more people that can hear these incredible stories of people who never gave up hope, of people who are inspiring, who have secrets to share with us, uh, life secrets, this is what it's all about. And I sincerely thank you so much. Today with me is Ben Starling. Ben is an author, an artist, and a boxer. He is passionate about many things, and we're going to discuss his passions today. He is passionate about marine conservation. He is passionate about boxing, which are central themes in his upcoming novel, which he will share as well. Ben has a Master of Arts from Oxford University, and he is Oxford's only ever quintuple blue which is a varsity champion five years running. And he has both coached and boxed competitively. So Ben is going to have a variety of things to share with us today. And I want you to give a big welcome to Ben Starling. Hi, Ben. Hi, Carol. So you are a man of passions. And... I hear you loud and clear in your bio when you shared some of the passions, which are very diverse, and I'm excited to to hear about those. The first one is marine conservation. So tell us how you got involved, what it entails, what you have accomplished, any of those things. Okay. I've always been fascinated by the sea, by the ocean, I used to spend my summer holidays um, in the Mediterranean and in the autumn I would often be found in the tropical parts of the Atlantic and initially I was a sort of not a very good scuba diver, I used to enjoy snorkeling and I used to be a fisherman and after those years I was lucky enough to travel very extensively around the oceans and I've always felt an incredible attachment to them. As you mentioned in introduction, I'm an artist. The very first things I was drawing when I was maybe three, two, three, four years old were very immature 
sketches of whales battling, really? gi- yes, battling giant squid. <laughs> um, quite bizarre. And over the years, I've returned again and again to my art. Um, and now I do very refined draftsman like black and white sketches of not just the ocean, but uh, marine life and land-based life as well. So my love of the ocean really goes back to my earliest days. And as I'm aware of the terrible pressure that people, that mankind is putting the oceans under at the moment, it, it really concerns me. So yes. I find myself in a situation in which I ran into an old friend about three years ago who also loves the oceans and his particular love are cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins. And we'll probably come back to this later, but he challenged me to write a book about whales and dolphins. And I was able to combine in this book um, all of my other loves and touch upon the other problems the oceans face at the moment. So, first of all, let's back up with the art. Did you do anything with your art? I used to post my art and it sold quite well um, as prints for a period of time. Um, I tend to actually keep it to myself very much. Over the last three years, I've been so busy writing because I've written a full-length novel, some short stories and a screenplay that I haven't picked up my pen for quite a while. But um, I haven't really put it to much use. It's very much a personal thing. Okay. Um, It is up on my website and people seem to like it. It used to be on, well, it is on Facebook. And um, in the early days, Facebook used to let you accumulate likes and comments and I had quite a few thousand uh, likes and comments on my art which is very flattering yes it would be and what about the the actual marine conservation as far as are you an activist like are you actively involved with any kind of causes or is this strictly just your a passion that that you um, are concerned about or um, well where I am at the moment is the friend who inspired me and challenged me to write the book the full-length novel which incidentally is going to be called something in the water Mm. He, he is launching a not-for-profit organization early in the new year, and I am responsible for quite a lot of the material which will go into that. So I'm not out there beating the drum, although I have attended a number of events mm-hmm. and marches. What, what I see my role being is more about educating and inspiring people in a way which doesn't beat them over the head. So it seemed to me that a novel, which was not didactic, not heavy-handed, was a better way of going forward. So I've attempted to craft something which is a very multifaceted novel, which has a very strong message behind it, but it's about more than just the oceans. But if you read it and you didn't come away extremely concerned and even committed to change some of your activities, I'd be very disappointed. So basically, you want to educate people and make them aware. Yes, that's and make correct. each each person do their little part per se. That's right. And build, the building awareness leads into the second thing. I mean, 
if we did lose the oceans, we lose everything. That's we are right. Incredibly dependent on the oceans, and there are so many subtle interrelationships going on between both the flora and the fauna of the oceans, but also the land. And there are activities, and a very simple example, and one which I'm sure many of your readers, your listeners, are familiar with, is the excessive dumping of plastic. Yes, that's what I was thinking, exactly. And, you know, this is a huge problem, and, and it builds up in the food chain and is highly carcinogenic for everyone it passes through. And there are enormous gyres in all the oceans of just slowly spinning uh, plastic, which never decomposes, uh, but it is picked up in the food chain and ingested and passed along. So that, that's just one theme. There are others, including overfishing and uh, the hunting of whale and dolphin, etc. But as I say, I haven't thrust this upon the reader. They're, they're just themes which run through the novel. Well, it's also extremely upsetting. And I'm sure that when you are doing your research, that's part of um, your passion is because it is so upsetting that you really want to bring the awareness. I mean, you, you don't have to go very far to know that it affects each and every one of us. That's so true. And, I, and I've had first-hand experience many times, be it turtles uh, caught in plastic or died because they've eaten, say, balloons. Um, I've seen manatees in the Florida Keys with terrible wounds inflicted on them by propeller blades from speedboats. Oh. Um, I mean, everything is happening and... We simply can't turn a, a blind eye to it. Now, are you a diver, Ben? I'm a very bad diver. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I did start diving when I was 16, but sinus problems caused me huge problems. I managed to get quite deep, but my ears then were very reluctant to clear on mm. the way up. Mm. And I used to get terrible headaches. And uh, so I have dived a fair amount, but I actually prefer snorkeling in shallow water. I, I, oh, okay. thought, I feel a little claustrophobic and dependent on my equipment at, say, 80 or 100 feet down. Um, I'm happier snorkeling in shallow water. I used to fish all around the world as a sport fisherman. I, don't, I haven't done that for many years. But um, snorkeling and fishing were, were my main things. And how many oceans were you uh, able to do this in? Or um, I spent a lot of time in the Atlantic on both sides of it, so off the U.S. and the African coasts. Um, I know parts of the Indian Ocean quite well, and I've spent a fair amount of time in the Pacific, in the South Pacific. And my my big novel, Something in the Water is set in the South Pacific in a sort of uh, mystical paradise between Solomon Islands and Tonga. So it's not a real place, but it picks up on a number of themes which are going mm, on down there. Okay, the okay. Very interesting. Now, switching gears, your passion yes. for boxing. What did you learn about life during the years you were boxing? And at some point, were you considering this a career? So tell us about your boxing. Well, uh, my boxing career actually began under rather unex unexpected uh, influences. I, I walked into the gym at Oxford University, 
and I was looking for a sport and I'd tried one or two things and this rather large muscular man said yeah we're looking for someone about your size and I said oh what are you talking about he said oh we need a light heavyweight for the boxing team Mm. so I said okay so I, I got in the ring with him and he's a very clever fellow because I threw a few sort of hopeless punches, of course. <laughs> and he made me think they, they would have really clobbered him. And, and then he aimed and made sure he just missed. And uh, he built up my confidence. And I actually discovered that I had an aptitude for it. And I think my aptitude was based on the fact that I'm the world's greatest coward. So whenever someone tried to hit me, I just ran away. But... What I learned was in running away, people always leave openings. So I developed what's called a counter-punching style, which is where you encourage someone to punch, you anticipate their punch, and then you hit them when you've made them miss. Right. Now, whether that is analogous to life, occasionally it can be. Um, But one of the things I did learn is the extraordinary courage you have to have to get in a boxing ring. And the worse you are at it, the braver you have to be. And I have a number of friends um, who are utterly hopeless. And they just kept coming back for more. And one of them became a very famous um, Jesuit priest, extremely high up in the Catholic Church, in fact. And I think he just enjoyed being hit in the head. Um, (laughs) But anyway, uh, I love boxing. And I, I did it, as you said in the introduction, for five years for Oxford against Cambridge. I then did it for a couple of years sparring with professionals, but an injury I sustained in one of my varsity matches in which I damaged a knuckle really prevented me competing at the highest levels. And so I never turned professional, Uh, but I did spar many hundreds of rounds with professional boxers. And I then went on to teach boxing to amateurs, oh, to, really? white, yes, to, to white collar uh, boxers as well, white collar professionals who are looking for a new sport. And I've, I've trained quite a lot of professional boxers on and off as well. And my last um, boxing match was seven years ago now. Um, but I, I was doing it on and off until quite recently. And I still do some of the exercises to keep fit. Do you miss it? I miss it terribly. Um, It was a form of expression for me. I mean, for some people it's music, for others it may be ballet or dancing. For me, there was something about it. And most people looking in on the sport see it as brutal. And of course, it has a brutal side to it. And people who love boxers like, say, Mike Tyson, um, they're not the sort of person who would appreciate the way I box. I, I love the subtleties. I love the okay. games. I love the, the chess match involved. And I do miss those things because I'm sure you're familiar with that old cliche, being in the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, in boxing, when you're in the zone, you can stand in front of a guy and he can throw 10 punches at you, all of which will knock you out, and you can make them all miss. And then you can just pat him on the nose and make him look very silly. And that's extremely enjoyable. So it's an intellectual exercise as well. It doesn't have to be. For a lot of people, it isn't. But um, at the risk of sounding arrogant, and I don't want to sound arrogant, <laughs> I could go for it. I, well, I would think that is probably what lifted me above most people because 
there are so many subtleties you can introduce to the sport, which most people have missed. And there are some sensationally good boxers who box like that. You've probably heard of Floyd Mayweather Jr. or Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, these great, great boxers, and I say boxer rather than fighter, had so many tricks up their sleeves. And that's sort of how I used to used to like to box. So did you study them a lot, like their techniques, etc. as well? Very much so, yes. And I constantly was watching everything they did and working out not only what they did, but why it worked and why it would work against one opponent and not another, because everybody is different. And so you have to have a repertoire and you have to be able to adjust. So a move which works perfectly against one guy may not work against the next guy. Now, any of the students that you had, did any of them make boxing a career or use it, um, you know, in their future? Or Not at the amateur level, because mostly it was university boxing. Oh, okay, okay. We, we would box other universities, the, the Army, the Air Force, the police, people like that. The white-collar boxing was white-collar professionals who were looking to lose weight and have a bit of a buzz in life. Um, I did train with and helped a number of professionals, uh, sort of me- middle-ranking ones. I did work very briefly with a very famous world champion about seven years ago, um, but it hasn't been a career for me except intermittently. I used to run a boxing gym for a couple of years, um, but I was always writing at the same time. I wasn't constantly doing that. Now, did these people seek you out because you had this edge that you were talking about to be trained by you? I think that's quite possibly true. Um, what are, One of the things I found with boxing is I borrowed ideas and techniques from other martial arts, which most boxers are not familiar with. And this gave me an edge. And if I was then able to pass this on to someone I was training, it would give him an edge. So probably 70% of what I do is standard, but it's the 30% which makes all the difference. And um, I could demonstrate things which very experienced professionals didn't understand, and they would look rather surprised. You know, how did I manage to hit this guy three times in a row when he'd been Mm. boxing 20 years longer (laughs) than me? And that was a bit of a buzz, I have to admit. Well, I would would assume that it would be great for your self-confidence, so that alone would, would help you in other areas of your life. Very much so, but that's an interesting point because it's very important not to let the self-confidence flow into an inflated ego. Yes. Some people who are very successful in, say, sport become extremely arrogant and unpleasant people, and I find that very off-putting. So I was extremely careful um, how I went through life because I, I was a very big fish in a very small pond. And it was important to me that people didn't think I was, I was arrogant. So I just carried on being, you know, the normal sort of guy that I hope I am. You know, I've thought about this a lot because I do, I do interviews anywhere up to five times a week. And I speak to an incredible number of people from all walks of life, all parts of the world. And this definitely is a conversation that has come up. And when there is self-confidence, it is a fine line between that and arrogance. And people like yourself, like you said, you have to work at that. I think you have to be very aware of who you are 
uh, the person you are projecting and how you're influencing the people around you. Uh, to this point in my life, I'm pleased to say I've made very few enemies. Um, I know very successful, arrogant people who I really don't think can like themselves very much. <laughs> I think that's a very good point. And that's actually, even though they're arrogant, there is a lack of self-confidence there because I think a lot of those type of people are putting on the airs that they are better than they really are because and they don't have confidence. I think that's absolutely true. And then that flows into another realm which I'm interested in, which is personality disorders. And Oh, talk as, about that. Well, I stumbled upon this area really rather unfortunately because I got tangled up with a man who had narcissistic personality disorder, which was combined with hypochondria. And I wasn't aware of this at first, and I couldn't understand his behavior. And he came across as supremely confident and extremely arrogant. And I did a lot of research, and the American Psychiatric Institute has produced something called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And when I found this and was then able to read up on the subject, I realized who or what I was dealing with. And it was really very, very scary. And recently, I've been very fortunate because a very close friend of mine got involved with a man who I think is a narcissist who was displaying some extremely dangerous traits. And so I was able to point her in the direction of this research so that she didn't get caught out. Because once you're in the clutches of Mm. a narcissist or a sociopath, you're in a terrible, terrible place. That is an excellent point. The clutches. I like the way you term mm, that. They are That's highly ex- manipulative. Yes, yes. And you see that a lot in a marriage situation. It, you know, where that can easily, the woman can easily, well, it can go both ways. It and, certainly can. And there are, there are what they call red flags, which personally I think people should be taught at school. So you, yes, you know, we should you have life, on your, life lessons, right? Yes, you, you know, they have enough <laughs> lessons, but how often is it any use late in life? That's but, right. You know, if we're all taught the sort of nine red flags of the narcissist, for example, we would be very well served and people would save themselves an awful lot of suffering. I recently interviewed a woman who is incognito who wrote a book and I was married to a psychopath and he was right. a... Um, uh, did, did you did you hear her? Did you hear? Her? I didn't hear. Oh, okay. Anyway, but the, the purpose of writing the book was also not just her memoir, but also to show the red flags. Yes. And to make I'm, people aware of that. I'm, I may know who you're talking about. It sounds familiar. Um, and the the red flags. The I suppose the only good news is when you know what to look for, they're very obvious. But until you've been have them explained to you, they're not obvious at all. And um, not only that, but don't you find that very often when we see red flags, we ignore them? Well, we all carry on repeating our mistakes. <laughs> in life, <don't> <laughs> that's, an, that's another entire radio interview, I think. That's and that's good. hindsight. You're yes. right. Now we could go 2020 on that. We could, <laughs> couldn't we? <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about your next passion. That is that you are a romantic and this comes, I'm sure, um, in many forms, but your short stories is one way where you express this. And you also lost someone very close to you 
to ovarian cancer. And she was, as you explained to me, uh, one of your inspirations for writing. So that's kind of a twofold question. So talk to me about your short stories, what inspired you, and also um, your passion regarding um, ovarian cancer and trying to help women. Okay. Well, I met Melissa about six years ago. And she was the person who introduced me. She was a very, very kind, loving person. And she introduced me to a concept which many of your listeners are probably familiar with, which is how people either either lead fear-based or love-based lives. And I slightly poo-pooed it at the time, but I've read up a lot on it since then. And we, our relationship was going extremely well. And one day she went to the hospital because she had a pain in her tummy. And I got a message later that day that she had about eight weeks left to live because she had a tumour in her abdomen, which was enormous. And uh, in fact, she lived for 13 weeks. But I was with her as much of that time as I could be. And of course, it was devastating and I closed down emotionally but there were times during that which were incredibly uplifting I remember on one occasion when the nurse was saying to me she's just drifting off to sleep because she's obviously very heavily medicated I, I was looking out of the window and at just that moment the clouds separated and there were these incredible beams of light which came out of the sky and lit up the room she was in and she didn't see it but I took that as sort of an encouraging sign and she we'd been Melissa was Canadian and we'd been staying with each other back and forth and I had to get back to England uh, and I stayed there until she was basically in in a coma and one and I was ringing the hospital every day and One day I rang the hospital and I was talking to the nurse and the nurse said, oh, I I have something fascinating to tell you. We were standing outside Melissa's room and we heard voices. We heard her talking to someone and we went into her room and she was lucid for maybe an hour a day at that point. Really? And there were two nurses standing at the end of the bed. And Melissa said to both nurses, hello, by their names. And then she looked straight down the middle between the nurses at an empty part of the room And she said, you're very beautiful. And the nurses looked at each other and they said, who are you talking to? And she said, the Archangel Michael. And that moved me so Mm. much. It sort of gives you the encouragement that there is more going on. And in the sort of build up to that phase, Melissa used to say to me, I was such a talented editor and I've, I've written short stories and um, articles for specialist magazines, business plans, because I was in business at one point. She said to me, promise me that one day you will write a full length story. Hmm. And, and I said, well, you know, I'd love to. And it's finding the time and I know how difficult it is. And about six months after that, two very important people came into my life. One was this friend who loves the oceans, who challenged me to turn this experience into something positive. 
And the other was someone who's become a very close friend who is an extremely experienced editor. And so I sat down and I started writing uh, something in the water, which I finished about a year ago, but I've been keeping it on the back burner because what I decided to do was to write a series of short stories which would feed into it. So the idea is I will take, and I am taking important characters from the main book and then giving a glimpse of their backstories. And I've just published uh, yesterday, in fact, the first of these short stories, which is called Something in the Air. And the common thread which runs through all of the short stories and the main novel is obviously love, but each of them has different ingredients. A secondary theme, which is quite important, is animals, uh, be it land animals, uh, the environment or the oceans. But there are common themes which run through all of them. Excuse me, what kind of animals did you say? Well, uh, land animals, land-based Oh, land animals. So something in the air is set around an animal sanctuary, for example, and it's a vet, a veterinarian who is looking after these animals and the events which take place when a returning Vietnam veteran arrives back in town. Um, So they all have similarities, but the way I intend treating love as the sort of glue between each book is going to be slightly different because love is an extremely multifaceted thing. It's more than just the love two people can have for each other. Yes, yes. Um, I I believe that love is a universal force, uh, that there is an enormous reservoir of it, which we all dip in and out of, and that it really is our only hope humankind is accessing love so as I develop these series I will be exploring other and more I hope interesting possibly profound ways of presenting what love may or may not be so as you're writing then uh, even though you are writing short stories and a novel you definitely are using uh, life experiences very much so Teaching lessons, too, I'm assuming. Well, I don't want to sound like too much of a teacher, but to give you an example, uh, many years ago, I was in the South Pacific in Bora Bora. And in those days, I used to go fishing. And we had a an islander, a Polynesian islander, who was working on the boat. And uh, deep sea fishing is one of the most boring activities known to man. <laughs> and uh, another sort of three-hour stretch of absolutely nothing happening was going by. And I was talking to him in in quite detail about his individual and his people's beliefs about life after death, about love, about what happens to us. And I've incorporated some of that myth and legend in something in the water. And I, I remember as we were heading back to the main island of Bora Bora, he suddenly stopped talking to me and was just looking up at the sky and I thought, oh, he's, you know, have I annoyed him or, or is he bored of me? You know, I'm, I'm used to people reacting to me like that. And uh, he turned around after a few minutes and he said, I was being silent out of respect for my returning ancestors who come back in the evening. And I just thought that was lovely. And so what did you take from that? Well, every culture has different beliefs about what happens to us after death. Many of them have 
beliefs about what love is. And many of these beliefs overlap. There are extraordinary overlaps. And some of the great Western um, psychoanalysts, um, people like Carl Jung, have drawn very interesting comparisons, be they religion, culture, his work. And what I've tried to do in Something in the Water, which incidentally won't be available until January of next year, is pick what, for want of a better word, are the more plausible, or to me, the more appealing of these themes, and stitch them together in a book about love, which I hope very much brings hope and encouragement and joy to the reader, because certainly the experiences I've had when I stitched them together helped me enormously in getting through losing Melissa. Mm. I, that that makes a lot of sense, yes, and I can see where that would all tie in. Um, now, your short stories, have you published all of them, or are you, are you going to be publishing them into a novelette type? Well, that's a, a very good question. The first short story I just published, I think yesterday, it became available on Amazon, and it's called Something in the Air, and it's about a returning Vietnam veteran, so set in 1973, and he becomes an extremely important character in the main novel. The second short story... I have written about 75% of. And again, it takes two extremely important characters. And the, the big novel, Something in the Water, has about eight people and potentially eight short stories. Okay. And that's what I intend to do up to the publication of the big book. I will probably produce three or four of them. And then once it's out, I hope to, to write three or four more. Now, when you say a short story on Amazon, is it like a short ebook? format or yes that's right at the moment it's published um as an ebook and uh when i say short i mean it, it's about twelve thousand words so it's a hour and a half's reading okay uh okay. easy to read in, in one sitting but it's not one of these incredibly short sit down and you know race through it in 20 minutes sort of short okay stories. thank you for that clarification all they, right. they'll all be that sort of length and once i've got a bunch of them i will bundle them up in one book and at some point in the fairly uh, recent future, I intend publishing them all as hard copy as well. Now, is that is that the passion that you are following mostly now at this stage in your life as you're writing? I would say so. I do miss my art terribly. Um, I have all these pictures in my head which I long to mm. sit down and draw, and I'm afraid they're going to stay in my head for the time being. I've... I do have a number of short stories to produce. I, I've written a screenplay. I, I was asked to write a screenplay, and I found that incredibly enjoyable, but frustrating because I had to take a, I had to cut out about five percent of the novel to produce a screenplay, which mm, wasn't too long. Really? And then again, yes, it's very interesting how much you have to chop out and how economical you have to be. But which is why people often come out of the cinema and say, great, gone, but the book was much better. Now, that makes a lot of sense. That's right, because otherwise it would take forever. You're absolutely right. You know, the film would be 10 hours mm -hmm. long. <laughs> I see. The short stories could then become sequels. In my wildest dreams, I would love <laughs> to get the big uh, book off as a film. And 
I actually, the, my editor is a very experienced screenplay writer. And when we wrote, uh, and when she edited and helped me with the, the big book, we wrote all the scenes from a very cinematographic perspective. We want people to be out there seeing things, experiencing things. And we want people in the film industry, as soon as they pick it up, to go, oh, yes, I can imagine this. I can feel it as a film. And each of the short stories are deliberately written in the same sort of style. So they do lend themselves to films themselves. And there are plenty of short stories which have made very good full-length films. So that the entire stories hmm. are always there. Uh, they're just obviously a lot shorter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the passions that we did not talk about and you touched just lightly on is animals. And I know that there is a very special great Dane that was in your life. Why don't you share your passion there and also your story of your great Dane? My wonderful great Dane. Well, for several years, I had a great Dane called Eddington, which was named after the village I lived in 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 the country in Wiltshire, which is a county about 100 miles west of London. And Eddington um, was a she strange name for a she, but yes. I was feeling fairly unimaginative when I named her. And in fact, we'd only just <laughs> moved to the village and she didn't mind. So anyway, we called her Eddington. And she was one of those pets who added so much to a family. Uh, she, she was a, you know, a person in her own right. She's a very clever dog. And one of the games I used to play with her was we had an island in the kitchen and a tile floor and I used to chase her around the island, which is about 10 feet long. It's a large island. And I would turn in one direction and she'd turn in the other and <laughs> back and forth. And if and when I finally caught her, because it was a very evenly matched competition, you could see how upset she was. She'd, really? She'd be so grumpy. And um, it was hysterical. And, and another thing we used to do with her, I used to pick up her front paws and put them on my shoulders, and then we would dance. And her tail would would be thrashing back and forth, knocking cups over (laughs) and tables over. But you could see the sheer enjoyment she had. And um, it was a very sad day when when we lost her, but that is the price you pay, certainly for pets. And great Danes don't live as long as some. Now, has she been an inspiration in any of your stories? Well, I believe she is my muse and sort of guardian angel. I still dream about her. And I still, whenever I dream about her, she's offering me encouragement. Um, And I believe that when, I believe we're all part of a collective soul. I don't believe we're as individual as we think we are. And um, the energy she had when she was alive and the energy I feel when I dream of her, it's just as powerful as, uh, as that of a person. Um, so she's always sort of in the background looking over me and encouraging me. And um, yes, I, she's never far from my thoughts, even though she died many years ago, 15 or so years ago. Really? And you, did you ever get another one? Well, I was hoping you weren't going to ask that oh. question. <laughs> I, I did get another one, and the next one was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it, it had about as much character as my shoe. Oh. And this poor dog was, you know, another beautiful-looking Great Dane, but she didn't add anything. And so it was one of those cases where, you know, I remember one, I'm afraid, much more fondly than the other. 
And uh, so you never had another. <laughs> I would love to. I, I now live in a flat in London, an apartment in London, and it probably isn't large enough to have a dog of that size. Although I'm very lucky. I've got a lot of open space near me and there are some very good places where one could walk dogs. And how, how so, much do they actually weigh? Well, uh, Eddington weighed nine and a half stone, which is, um, what's that, about 140 pounds, is that right? Really? Something like that. And a male can weigh 12 stone. And they aren't, uh, a lot of the time, they, they're quite overweight, but they should be like huge greyhounds. If you think of yes, a dog yes. like Scooby-Doo, you know, they don't need to pile on a, a fat. And it's all it's all trim and muscle. And uh, I remember, yeah, she she was a lump when she jumped on you in bed. You <laughs> Did you ever teach her to box? Um, I didn't teach her to box. Uh, the closest we ever came to that was I used to take her for long walks in the country. And if she saw deer, she'd always chase off after them. But deer run much quicker than Great Danes. Right. And they would always keep her 10 feet behind them. Oh, my and goodness. They'd, they'd get to a, a tall hedge at the end of the field, maybe a 10-foot hedge or an 8-foot hedge. And they would bound over it in one go, leaving her looking extremely pissed off. <laughs> and, and then she'd come back to me. And over time, she realized it was a waste of her time trying to chase these things. So did she stop or did she keep going? She eventually learned it was a waste of time. Yes. So she'd just look at me she and off. shrug and say, no, I'm not bothering. Aww. How old was she? Well, unfortunately, Great Danes had only lived to about eight years old, but she only lived to six years old. Oh, my goodness. And it yeah. was a great tragedy that Great Danes suffer. Very a common problem is they get twisted stomachs. Oh, because yes. Because yes. their stomachs are not attached fully or at all to their rib cages and uh, she was struck down by this and it was all over in a matter of hours it was a terrible shock actually i wrote a post about that because that that did happen to uh, my daughter's dog so i really it was it's an extremely painful thing to watch oh it was you terrible know? oh and absolutely she blew up you know like a balloon yes 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 that operated and it was obviously a very major operation but she died of a heart attack uh, and you're right they're become part of our lives yes you know, i'm a much. dog rescuer and so i can totally relate anytime anybody talks about dogs i mean my heart oh. just you know it's like a big balloon well they're much so, nicer than most people aren't they well like i've always said i've never not liked a dog yes. <laughs> <laughs> although i nearly got bitten by one the other day though <laughs> oh. i met a lunatic i met a man walking a some sort of bull terrier i think it was a staffordshire terrier and this dog was smiling and, and wagging its tail so i put its hand out and oh, no. while it was still wagging its tail it went for me oh. and luckily i got my hand out of the way in time and the owner said oh yeah he always does that oh dog, no thanks very much you know, <laughs> no <excellent."> kidding <laughs> should have a uh, warning label on it you know well he could have got into a lot of trouble i mean if exactly absolutely very odd to see a dog wagging its tail and go for you at the same time well obviously the owner didn't discipline it in any way no. so it assumed it was a okay um reaction right well he apologized but he needed to do more than that i exactly. hope the dog doesn't hurt anyone else <laughs> Well, Ben, this has been really interesting because it's it has encompassed a lot of different areas, and um, 
what, let's tie it up by talking about your books, where they're available, again, the dates, your, you know, and um, where they can be purchased, etc. Of course, all of this information will be on the website for people. And But just give us a little synopsis. Okay, well, if anyone would like to read more about me or the books, my website is ben-starling.com. Um, the first short story, Something in the Air, has just gone live as an ebook Kindle on Amazon. And there should be another one following it in about six weeks. The main book, Something in the Water, is being published on the 21st of January next year. And if any of your listeners are interested in art, uh, my art is also up on the ben-starling.com okay. website. All right. Well, Thank you very much, and it has been a delight. I appreciate your time. I know that um, there'll be many people with questions, et cetera, and they can certainly ask this, and, and when it goes live, that we will have all your information available for people, and by then, maybe you're – well, no, you said January when your book comes out, right? The main book will the be The main January, book, okay. Right. All right. All right, Ben, thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. It's been great fun. And goodbye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.